Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the Venture Fizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. For the 49th episode of our podcast, I interviewed Louis Gersh, founder and chief stamp licker at Pebble Post. Lewis is a serial entrepreneur and investor, having founded a seed stage investment firm in New York City. His latest startup is called Pebble Post, a company that has invented programmatic direct mail. The company is providing a solution that is combining the new with the old. Their platform takes consumers' online interests and intent data to ultimately use that information to send out highly targeted and meaningful direct mail programs on behalf of brands and retailers. Pebble Post recently announced a $25 million Series C round of funding led by Advanced Venture Partners. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics like Lewis's background story and the details on his first company, Worldly Information Network, his experiences as an investor and focus on B2B marketing and e-commerce technologies, the aha moment that led him to start Pebble Post, plus the details on how their platform works and its effectiveness, what entrepreneurs should know before starting a company, hence it has a lot to do with focus, plus a lot more. Okay, quick side note. Do you subscribe to the Venture Fizz NYC Weekly Tech Buzz email? It's the one email a week that you need to keep tabs on the tech scene in New York City. It is a highly curated digest with all the major announcements, stories, jobs, and deals from the week. Go to venturefizz.com backslash email to sign up. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Lewis. Lewis, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Pleasure to be here. So I, I always like to start off the conversation kind of going uh, back into someone's, you know, history, the foundation years. Uh, you know, a common question I ask people is, you know, what, what did your parents do for work and what were some of your first jobs? And when we were having the prep conversation before that, the whole story and fundamental um, answer to your question here brings everything full circle. So let's just start off with that. Um, you know, what did your parents do for work? Yeah, they, uh, it really does. So they were entrepreneurs, founded their own business, um, PR services and management in the music industry. And early on in it, in the heyday of, of the record industry, they managed um, uh, and did the PR for uh, Stax Volts Records, for Otis Redding, uh, Ray Charles, Mavis Staples, Aretha Franklin, up through The Who, Blondie, ACDC, Meatloaf, uh, and many others across all walks of jazz, blues, rock, crooners like uh, Charles Aznavour and others, um, all the way up through pop, right? And uh, Partridge Family and uh, wow. the Cassidy's, right? Yeah, all kinds. And one of the things I would do as a first job was um, help manage their fan clubs as part of the PR services and uh, got my training, right? Opening letters. Um, reading them, putting them into different stacks based on the segment of the interest and and then sending out the standard response letters and or demo records or tapes and and sending those. Which, you know, fast forward and we're going to talk about this later, but, you know, I, I like how your title is, you know, chief stamp licker at your current company. So this goes back to like when you were, you know, just helping out with the family business, which I, I mean, I mean, those were the you know top of the top artists. I mean, that's amazing. Yeah, they worked with with quite a number over the years. It's a uh, and a diversified list, right? Where right. they felt like they were very privileged to work with such talent. To them, it was respect for the talent. Mm-hmm. It wasn't about um, uh, like their their desire to for fame or right. to be around famous people at all, right? It was just 
what they fell into. And it was out of respect for talent. And like, so did you, uh, you know, meet a lot of these artists too? Yeah, I met a lot, would go uh, backstage all the time. It, it was a standard thing in, um, from middle school on where uh, it had a letter that was uh, authorization for me with pre-approved friends, where if there was going to be a show that night in New York City, we lived in Jersey at the time, or I was living in Jersey at the time, um, they would contact the school. They would call me in and say, all right, grab the 2.30 bus or after school bus. You can bring two friends and you're going to see ACDC or Blondie or whoever. Um, and sometimes before they were even famous, like ACDC in 1977 on their first U.S. tour at the Palladium. Wow. Uh, to, yeah, when they were after their run in the South where they were literally booed off stage. Um, and I had pre-approved friends whose parents said it was okay for them to either leave school early or go with me onto a bus to New York City. And we'd go in, walk up to my parents' office and go see shows, go out to dinner with them, the artists. And, you know, these kids would go home and we'd show up to school the next day. And other kids are like, I'm tired from writing that English essay. What'd you do last night? And it was like, don't <laughs> <end."> right? <laughs> I was hanging out with Blondie. <laughs> right. Yeah, it was pretty fun. It was, it was uh, not your typical upbringing, I guess. For that's somebody. so cool. I'm, I'm a huge, you know, music buff, like all genres. So that's just, uh, that would be amazing. So. Now, so you ended up going to school on the West Coast, though, right? So you went to San Diego State University? I did. I, um, I went to high school in Sedona, up in the Red Rocks in Sedona. Okay. Um, and then uh, moved to, started college in Santa Cruz, transferred down to San Diego. Um, had a great time down there. Loved it. Got into uh, uh, athletics there heavily, back in athletics. I had been in high school and was uh, president of their triathlon team. And after graduating took a year off and moved to New Zealand and competed in Ironmans, ultra marathons, marathons all over New Zealand and then Australia, and then came back and off to law school, right? Which is kind of a thing back then. Now, how do you train for like an Ironman is like amazing, right? I've, I've talked to other founders that have competed in Ironman, but an ultra marathon, what's the distance on that? They vary. Uh, it can be anything from, 50k which is 31 miles to 50 miles to 100 miles wow. uh, some of them they'll do just 24 hour runs so as far as you can go right uh, that's not my thing <laughs> i was <doing laughs> milers and up to 100 miles so i love trail runs uh much more and it, it's really mental right it's about the discipline of um and the enjoyment of the training right that's really what it's about yeah. so when you really go compete it's more, it's more like, a um, you have to be on for that training day. Right. And that, that's how a lot of people in endurance events think about it. Mm -hmm. Um, and you're a lot for 95% of the people participating, you're competing at most in your age group, but mostly against yourself. Right. Uh, right. There's only a handful of people in the world who can ever win overall. Um, and there's multiple handfuls that can win in an age group on any given day. Mm -hmm. So you're really competing against yourself to push yourself, um, through it. Right. And, um, that's a great discipline for when you're getting into startups, right. As many people say, it's not a sprint, it's a marathon. I don't think they realize how, 
you know, just like a runner's high. One minute you're pounding your chest at the sky on top of the world. And the next minute you're like, my God, what have I done? And gotten us- <laughs> what am I doing? <laughs> yes, totally. So on to law school, what was the, the thought there? Um, I, I was very inspired by some of my uh, parents, uh, best friends in the music industry who were leaders in the legal field. Um, some of them had become label heads. Um, some of them stayed on the legal side, uh, but Paul Marshall and uh, Bob Casper and a, a whole number, um, Grubman and Dursky, that firm, know all the founding partners and thought, I know so many people in the music industry, they were the business side as many deal makers um, where the label heads ran the labels, the artists had theirs, but the, the best music industry attorneys were really business minds who were deal makers um, between the labels for the labels and with the artists. And that's what I had thought I really wanted to get into. Um, fast forward to mid nineties, getting out of law school, the music industry was really on its initial implosion at that point. Um, labels were falling apart, executives with golden parachutes on the front page of the Wall Street Journal, and the, the nascent rise of digital and the web um, really hitting. And you had uh, Music Boulevard and CD Now, N2K, right, with um, John Diamond and a number of other entrepreneurs in those early days of music online. And I, I, I love technology. It was a big thing that I would study and read a lot, um, had a bit of a science background and um, really became enamored with that and thought, how do I apply what I've learned and the legal training? Um, and when I got out of law school, had an offer to go join a startup, quote unquote, label, which was the Universal Music Group. Um, Danny Glass, who ran Rising Tide Entertainment, had merged in. He was an old friend. Uh, Doug Morris and Mel Winter were starting. They were also family, friends, and colleagues. And I thought, and and the offer was to go in and run business development. Um, and they had, there were so many non-competes going on about was it really allowed to be a label? Who was allowed to work there early days? Um, and I'm getting out of law school with no finite job, but a very finite payment schedule on student loans. <laughs> and, yep. Like, okay, I, I work for this great entrepreneur at a Sony who had been in quote unquote multimedia at the time. Um, and so I joined him kind of turn left at 57th street, go a few blocks down. And there was his office as opposed to the labels. So, so what, what were you focused on there? Um, his, uh, so he had built Sony motion pictures, Sony music video, Sony laser optics, some of the most successful and biggest divisions in Sony. He had left to start his own multimedia publishing company that specialized in a lot of Japanese animation when that was first on the rise here in the United States as a broader kind of niche, a niche genre, but was gaining some mainstream appeal. Um, so there was uh, VHS, CD-ROM, lasers, uh, laser discs, uh, manga, comic books, animation cells, all these different uses of that content. Um, and one of them that he was leaning in heavily for is what do we do with the web? Um, Mitsui was one of his backers. They had backed a lot of AOL um, when AOL was already public and having extreme issues in the mid-90s. They had, if anybody recalls, the busy signal crisis. 
Nobody could dial in and get their mail. They were getting busy signals. They were public. They couldn't raise a secondary. Their stock was faltering. They were under attack from state's attorney generals um, over consumer protection because people are paying monthly fees and they're getting busy signals. They can't dial in. It was not a great time. Um, Part of the company I worked for had a big research division around technology and media. So we were really steeped in it. Um, And lo and behold, after about uh, a year, I wound up founding a company in partnership with AOL and Omnicom based on that background I had working at uh, what was called Central Park Media at the time. So so Worldly Information Network is the company you started then, right? Correct. Yes. And it was um, the thesis for it was what we call transactional media. And the idea was that on the web, and again, this is like later, mid to late 90s, on the web for the first time ever, a consumer can initiate a dialogue with a brand on a one-to-one basis, right? Visit a website per se. Um, Evidence what we called user-driven segmentation based on their behavioral activity, what they did. And then the brand can use that data and user-driven segmentation to um, continue the dialogue with that consumer through content to drive them to commerce. Content to us was anything from a display ad to an email, to an article, to sponsored content, et cetera. Um, And basically what we were pioneering, right, sitting between uh, a, a firm called Organic, which became part of Omnicom, was was, and we did an equity joint venture with Organic and uh, AOL, mm-hmm. and we were pioneering what became behavioral targeting and eventually retargeting. We used email because ad servers were nascent and terrible back then, right? Mm-hmm. It was, um, you know, double click was the the best of the worst of what was available at the time, and wound up becoming the gold standard. But nothing really worked well in call it ninety six to ninety seven. And then over time, like obviously this company, it looks like for four years you were you know focused on this. Like, what was the the, the progression to you know where what it became? Yeah, so um, we created the we we our our simple uh, kind of elevator statement was not necessarily pitch. We we're the largest provider of free investing newsletters on the web, mm-hmm. and what we did was map the content we produced to the mutual fund structures of Fidelity, Schwab, American Century, et cetera. And um, so every month and every quarter, there would be a, a portion of mutual funds that would always be beating the market. That was part of the strategy, right? Growth and income versus value or biotech versus automotive or U.S. stocks versus Asia stocks, whatever it was, something's always going to be beating the market. So we had dailies and weeklies around that. And the retail financial service companies could sponsor the content um, and heavy up on whatever was beating the market at any given time, right? And we, um, we had dailies and weeklies. In about three years, we were on track to transmit up to about a billion emails a year. And back then, a billion was a lot. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And emails were sold for a lot. Uh, CPM wise, right. As advertising, um, we wound up the bubble burst. We were about to go public bubble burst. We bought a few companies with, uh, worldly, and then we wound up selling it a retail division, uh, to part of a small public company, uh, Barra, which was in the space. And then the institutional portion to, um, Faxet, 
which is a larger public company on the New York Stock Exchange in the space. Um, and then uh, after it, I used the leftover office space for quite a while to start angel investing with a handful of the people leveraging that transactional media theory, mainly with our controller and our head of corp dev, an attorney. Um, she would do the financial consulting. He would do the legal consulting or legal work for startups that we'd invest in and give them space on the floor. And this is 2003, right? Became kind of one of the first quasi seed fund accelerators, right? That we were doing. I was going to say that. I mean, it's exactly like, so I was going to ask like, what was the investment landscape back then? Cause you know, it wasn't like, um, you know, institutionalized seed funds that you have now, right? It was, you know, very no. much. Uh, great play on words. You, you, I deserve to be institutionalized for trying to start a seed fund. <laughs> <laughs> Especially in 2003 when you're still trying to. Oh, the, the landscape was nothing short of the Sahara Desert, especially yeah. New York City. New York City had never had a strong, um, broad-based VC and angel community like the Valley. Right. Um, Boston had more from out of the biotech days, right? Mm -hmm. um, New York being the financial center, but that's the public markets downtown, right? Or the private asset management, hedge fund, et cetera, mm -hmm. not venture, right? There were a handful of really good venture funds, um, a dozen or two maybe kind of somewhat reliable angels at the time. Right. Um, it was really early days and a lot of... Anybody who got really excited and tried to build up got washed out when the bubble burst in 2000, right? Mm -hmm. So you had this whip, whiplash effect happening. Um, so we had 25,000 square feet of wired office cubes um, that with rent prepaid for after we sold the company and started investing and building a portfolio. And after a few years, had a couple of good exits. Um, drifted a bit or extended, I guess I should say, better from the... Um, transactional media around around uh, web content, web media, as it was called at the time, right? Digital media mm -hmm. um, into transaction processing. And part of the idea was uh, if every e-commerce was hard back then. So trying to get in, if you're, if you're looking at the behavioral activity and you're retargeting somebody with content to drive them to commerce, but you're not actually following through what happens at the commerce side. It's really hard to understand attribution or what's cause and effect. Mm -hmm. um, so I started getting into the transaction processing, then had a real awakening, which was we're living in this bubble about the power of the web and digital and those, especially the bubble days, the late nineties, um, sold a transaction processor. And at the closing dinner, a guy said, you know, what are you working on next? And I said, well, I'm going to look into maybe mobile uh, commerce. And the guy just kind of chuckled and said, <laughs> that's great. Like, you go work on that. We'll focus where 95% of the transactions happen mm -hmm. in the physical world. It was like, whoa, wait a minute. Like, e-commerce at that time was only 5% of transactions. Right. While Amazon or eBay was taking off as leaders for that 5%. The rest were scraps, and yeah. and it's incredibly myopic. Nobody in their right mind would focus only on five percent of a market, right? If they go after all of it. So I started trying to extend the thesis of this kind of burgeoning seed fund into connecting the physical retail, where ninety percent today, ninety percent is spent, still there. 
95% back then. Um, that was hard, trying to bridge the gap with flip phones, um, nascent texting, things like that in the mid-2000s, right? Not easy. Um, but it was a, we learned a lot, and we had some successes. It was, it, it was incredible timing for it. What were some of the success stories back then? Um, so one of the earliest was, uh, on the, on the digital ads. So there were two sides. There were the ad side and the transaction processing side, mm-hmm. ad tech and martech, um, industry brands, uh, which in, I think it was 34 months was a 24 X return. Wow. Um, great one early on in the portfolio, great bunch of angels in it too. Real leadership, uh, in the Northeast around that deal. Um, which spun out uh, Madison Logic, which sold uh, two years ago for 130 million, and spun out from that is now Bombora, which is now crushing it as a data play, all B two B. Fetchback was probably the the first real retargeter um, uh, standalone that was post exchange world. Um, that was also another great exit. Uh, sold to GSI Commerce, which sold to eBay. Mm-hmm. Um, and on the payments processing side, we sold first uh, Tranvia to uh, Comdata, which was part of Ceridian, uh, and have a number of others like Transactus today. Still keep tabs with the portfolio. Um, many of the uh, CEOs are very good friends. And in fact, with Pebble Post, not to fast forward, 11 of the founders and or CEOs are up in my portfolio, are investors in Pebble Post. Four founders I passed on their deals because it wasn't right for our thesis or our time, mm-hmm. um, but helped them and became friends. Four founders I passed on invested in Pebble Post. Um, and one of them now is one of our C-levels too, is an employee after he invested in Pebble Post. Really fun story. That's uh, awesome. Building, yeah, building relationships, right? It's mm-hmm. what it's all about. It really is. It really is. Well, uh, perfect segue though. So what is Pebble Post? So, um, what we saw at the fund was the advent of, um, and we grew, we, we grew the fund into a committed capital fund. I say we, cause I added two partners over time. Um, and I led those rounds in as I said, fetch back Chango tap ad sale through movable link mass relevance. I stock at 33 cross, blah, blah, blah. Many trend on the payment side, Transactus and others. Um, and really had a great time. And saw programmatic sweeping through. Um, started in display, went to email. Everybody said online video would be next. Then maybe digital outdoor or events or digital radio or digital TV into home. And I thought, you know, that's kind of workflow management. It's not really programmatic of data-driven decisioning to enhance the efficiency and efficacy of a goal. Um, that's really just... How do you automate some workflow, right? When you go too far out into that analog world. But I thought, wait a minute, everybody forgot about direct mail. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's the largest ad spend next to TV, the highest response rate of any media you could buy. Is no it really? Product. Yeah, still is. Um, always has been. Um, no new product really in 25 years since the digital printer and the zip for sorting. Woohoo! Right, that's exciting. <laughs> uh, it is if you're in it in direct mail, and uh, and it's a fragmented ecosystem of three thousand point solutions that don't talk to each other. Mm-hmm. So we said, 
could we bring programmatic principles in the early days of programmatic to that world? And we thought we were going to reinvent pure direct mail. Mm -hmm. And what happened was we realized very quickly and from market feedback, we were creating a new channel. Um, so we invented programmatic direct mail. Um, it's actually our brand of our product, right? We have the trademark on that. Um, and, and what it does is takes the best of digital with the real-time interest and intent data on a one-to-one -one basis for retargeting or behavioral targeting. Um, but then it shifts into um, sending physical mail into home, which is where most buying decisions are made. Meaningful and higher purchase decisions are made around the home. You call your information, think about it, talk about it um, around the home and decide. Then you go buy, right? And 90% of purchases happen in the physical world. Digital ads are not really good for driving a meaningful and higher purchase decision at home. Digital ads are really good for click and purchase now, direct response and digital, which is kind of task and utility driven purchases. You evidence interest and intent, they remind you, you click and buy. It's a task, it's a utility, it's a commodity product. It is nothing where you're comparing um, either a purchase you don't want to remake for three years like luggage or something you have to spend 200 bucks on or 2000 bucks on that you want to think about and compare. You don't get that in a digital ad, right? Mm -hmm. You get that, you can get that from physical mail in a home. Right. So you take the best of digital with that real time interest and intent data. You're sending it into home with physical media where you can really impact a meaningful and higher purchase decision. And then from that, you can go to any purchase channel. You can go back to the web. You can pick up a phone and do a, a phone order. You can do a mail order. Some people still do that. Or you can go to physical location where about 90 percent of money spent. Right. So we realized it was creating a whole new channel, taking the best of direct mail, going in a home and the best of digital. Now, does, does the company need to know me as like, you know, Keith and where I live, like have my address in one of their systems? Um, yes and no. Great question. So um, we started out thinking we would. What we realized is um, we what we can do is match transform up to 70% of site traffic for a brand to a household address. Wow. We don't have to know it's you. And in fact, we don't ingest any PII from a brand any at all. Mm -hmm. Right. We need to know a household, right? Households have a lot of attributes attached to them from third party consumer data companies. Right. Right. Like Experian or Axiom or, you know, um, TransUnion, et cetera. Um, you mail a household, you might address it to a person, but you have no idea who's going to check the mail, sort the mail and take relevant mail and put it in the short stack. That's what we call it on the counter. If you survive the sort and go in the short stack, you're in the game. Right. Yeah. Most physical direct mail list based demographic. Um, it's not relevant, right? What they're really doing is call it junk mail, right? They're mailing a recycle bin and hoping 5% gets saved, right? Yeah. right? What we do because of the real-time interest and intent data, all we have to do is go to a household um, level, send it there so it's relevant, and we do a lot of behavioral targeting and suppression and all that. But 
when it shows up, 90% of our mail, programmatic direct mail, is relevant at the household level. It's meaningful mail. Mm -hmm. And if you're thinking about talking about a meaningful and higher purchase decision at home, odds are whoever checks the mail will put that aside in the short stack, Mm -hmm. right? So you don't need to worry about whose name is on it. You don't need to worry about gimmicks. Open me now. It's really going right. to, it's a check, but it's right. not really a check, right? It's some gimmick to get you to open an envelope or, or do Time something. sensitive. In fact, you don't even need that strong of like discount or call to action varying by brand. Only about half our brands use a strong call to action or discount. Um, and we say like, look at it this way. If you're a Bed Bath & Beyond, Mm-hmm. Nobody in their right mind is going to respond without a 20% off coupon. Right. They, when aliens land on Earth, they're going to have a 20% off coupon for bed. <laughs> um, if you're Tiffany, there's zero chance you're ever getting a discount. What has the brand conditioned its consumer right mm-hmm. to expect? And that, that dictates the possibility of an offer. But what we found is even a lot of the ones who are somewhere over the middle on the spectrum towards offer base, not as far maybe as Bed Bath & Beyond, mm-hmm. um, they don't have to use an offer and they get extremely high response and conversion rates because it's relevant. And in fact, the more respectful, the more relevant it is without being spooky, the more, the more respectful it is because it's useful to a consumer, right? If they're in market for something, it's a reminder. Um, it can drive them with, it could be set an appointment in store or get free shipping or get 10% off. It can have offers or it can just be reminder. We have the new fall line coming out. You were just on the site looking at things. Um, it's pretty, what we found is really relevancy and respect and keeping that in harmony. No big shock that wins, right? Think about digital ads. If you're disrespectful, right? And you're irrelevant. Like I, I have said for a while, consumers shouldn't need a restraining order for six weeks to look at a pair of socks online. And that's basically where we've come. Or they've already bought the socks and they keep getting hammered with the ads, right? Consumers don't like those two things, especially. They're irrelevant or disrespectful. So with inherently with the cost of printing and postage, you need to be... Um, um, measured in what you're going to send to who because maybe one shot per month right per household per brand so you better pick right right so it's intrinsically going to be more relevant and more respectful because it's only going to come once a month and it has to be relevant right as a general rule we have some brands who mail more than that but mostly we tell them to do that and and from what i gathered from from your website it seemed like there was two viable solutions for brands it's uh the programmatic postcard which you know that seems like a very easy medium you know low cost in terms of production and and mailing and then like more of a customized programmatic catalog that seems like it's highly customized based on the consumer experience so i'm going to go on a little bit of a tangent because i was just curious after going through what your company does the so Restoration Hardware will send me multi-hundred-page catalog, full-on glossy color, 
to my house that ends up in the recycle bin faster than it, you know, it makes it into my house. And I'm just like, they spent a fortune in terms of the production, the, the photo shoots, the, the print to mail this thing to me. And I'm like, I, I guess, you know, they are making money from this because I can't see them continuing to do it and not, but I'm just like the production expense for this that ends up in my recycle bin is phenomenal. It, uh, yes. Um, they were actually, that was the bane of my existence in the seed round when I was out raising it. Um, my pitch was, uh, always going for simplicity. I have a seven syllable pitch for a billion dollar opportunity, <laughs> programmatic direct mail. And that was the summer when they first sent those. And that was, uh, three years ago. Yeah. And they, uh, and, and many of VC, my seed fund buddies, my brethren, we had lots of hits together. You think you get special consideration when you bring them a deal you're leading that makes their fun. Mm-hmm. Nope. Nope. <laughs> what did you do for me tomorrow? Not yesterday. Right. Yeah. Uh, and that was one that kept coming up. Like, look at this restoration hardware catalog. This is yeah. crazy. People hate wasted mail. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's talk about like the reality of kind of what happens with that for most catalogs, they cost about a buck a piece, like the thin paper, small, typical ones mm-hmm. on average, they mail between depends on the brand and the considered purchase eight to 12 mailings before a purchase eight bucks to get somebody to make a purchase where they typically buy lots of items out of there. Right. Mm-hmm. What they're doing is they need to continue to be there. If they're always on your coffee table, when you're ready to make a purchase, they pick you up and go online or call or go to the store, right? Um, I think, I, I don't know what restoration hardware, um, they're, they're, they, what their plan was, what their thesis was. Um, I presumed it was a little bit for that category of try and reinvent a Sears catalog experience, which was Americana, right? That was legend, um, right? And in fact, early on, we went out to Sears and offered to do the world's first programmatic catalog with them. And I would give them one to two quarters of volume for free if I got a use case that we could pub- publicize, mm-hmm. um, that we reinvented the legendary Sears catalog as programmatic direct mail. Mm-hmm. That'd be pretty cool, right? Yeah. Um, if they're listening and, and <laughs> still love to do it. I think restoration w- would wanted to go after that right that i but what i think backfired a bit was for a lot of people at the at the first version was the the guilting people into bringing it in the house and having to keep it there and intriguing them that they wanted to go through it and they wanted to investigate the products i think that was the that was where parts of the bet mm-hmm. um and for a lot of people it worked right and they reportedly did quite well with it though with some backlash about, you know, the typical, most people don't know it's recycled paper, recycled all kinds, um, ISO 9000 safety on the inks and stuff, non-chemical based, all that goes into most direct mail, right? It's not wasting trees. It's not hurting the environment. Mm-hmm. Most people don't know that. So yeah. they pick that, they pick that sucker up and they're just like, there's a little bit of backlash of what are you doing? You're mailing me a phone book. I don't want it. <laughs> right. Right. I, you get a phone book left by your mailboxes in an apartment building in New York city. That's a waste. Like you're mad at, and, the, and those are utilities, right? 
<laughs> yeah, it's crazy. So uh, recently you've closed uh, your Series C, right? It was $25 million? Uh, correct. Uh, we actually had a oversubscription with a couple of strategics that we'll be announcing in a couple of weeks. So it went, went a good bit higher, but in that range. Yep. Got it. Okay. So what's the plan looking ahead for Pebble Post? Um, never to raise another venture round again. That's a number one. Okay. Uh, been through this quite a bit and uh, really excited for where we've grown and what we've learned. Um, so what, what we look at now with this capital is heavily into the data science um, and the launching our 2.0 platform, which bakes in so much of the data we've grown and built um, in our own graphs, as well as integrating data science to monetize them to enhance performance in our graphs, as well as taking in third-party data, both consumer data by household, as well as transaction data um, through uh, sources like card swipes from retail. So we can now integrate this into one platform um, and we call it Project Morpheus and giving the brand the red pill. Um, if you've seen the matrix. Yeah, of course. <laughs> so where a typical digital targeter, right, looks at cookies and they might recognize 20% of site traffic, they might recognize as a returning customer. Everybody else is a visitor, returning visitor, maybe sprinkling on some DMA data from a Quantcast or Omniture or something, right? Um, spice it up a little bit. What we look at, because we can transform now up to 70% of site traffic to a household address. Um, imagine taking that red pill. You're seeing the matrix. No more unique users and returning visitors. We show you real-time streaming households by behavioral activity by product segment. We then take the marketer's goal, right? Is it drive to store? Is it online? Is it higher AOV? Is it faster velocity of transaction? What are their goals? We look at that household data for the campaigns and we're able to over-target or suppress who are the most likely households that'll find this relevant. And we do it by what purchase channel, right? Is this a household who buys this product mostly in store or mostly online? Then we're able to dynamically render the most appropriate collateral with the most appropriate creative elements, the most appropriate call to action of where to drive them and what to offer them. If you're a household of convenience, you don't want 20 and you only shop in store. You don't want 20% off to buy online, right? You're somebody of convenience. You either need free shipping online or some make an appointment in store, depending on what it is, right, as a product. So we can, we can look at tuning which households go in which campaigns, which type of collateral should they get to drive them to do what, right? So this has never been done before. Um, and what we're really on to is tying in all the attribution data from any purchase channel, right? which has also never really been done before. See Google trying to do it with some of the MasterCard, how much did their ads impact going into store? It's going to be a tiny amount, but, but at their volume, that could be meaningful, right? What we're finding is we're driving cash flow positive foot traffic to physical retail. Mm -hmm. That's manna from heaven.
right? Yep. I mean, we're finding incremental doing lift analysis, right? Doing holdout groups. How much are we causing versus how much it would have happened anyway? And we are so overperforming in many of those for the retailers. And that's without seeing all the attribution data. We see a portion of it and we know we're overperforming, right? We're performing a lot better than what we can show them. And there's, we're still overperforming their typical metrics. So it's a lot going into our reporting and analytics and data science to say, we're going to now be able to get all this data and we're going to be able to surface it with transparency so you can actually see it and understand it. Because we're causing, what, what we're showing you today is already better than what you expected, but we know it's actually even a lot more than what we're showing, right? So that's the, it's a good problem to have. Like how it's better than the sound of crickets, right? When you're out selling a new product, but it's definitely um, getting through a lot of that is where we're, we're the next level of the company, um, which is really fun. Very cool. Well, you've obviously started multiple companies. Uh, you've invested in lots of companies and we started out by saying building a company is hard. So what are the things that you think entrepreneurs should know before starting a company? Uh, a number one, uh, focus, 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 right? Um, dare to be right is my other one, right? Uh, the best entrepreneurs in my portfolio, right? Two of them were companies I mentioned before, right? Eric Matlick with Industry Brains, Chad Little at Fetchback from early days. Um, we, we called it giving the Heisman to opportunities, right? If, if you're, uh, what are the most key things needed right? You have to have the enthusiasm to will something into being, right? The vision to see something that doesn't exist and the courage to fail in front of everybody. So if you got that enthusiasm to will things into being, the first thing is you're going to attract lots of opportunities, right? People are going to gravitate to you and to the opportunity and say, yeah, but what if you do this? Yeah, but what if you do that? Mm -hmm. Or yeah, but tweak this product and we'll buy you for a ton of money. <laughs> it ha any good entrepreneur is going to have all of those things happen. Any of them listening will be laughing now. 99.9% mm -hmm. .9 of the time, it does not happen, right? If you chase what if, do this, you're going to distract yourself and you're going to run out of money. Yeah. Oh, we'll buy you. 99% of the time, does not happen, right? No. There's no way. They want proof it's working before they're going to buy you. So, right, you have to set up, I always felt like one quarter solid goals, second quarter out, kind of possibly changing priorities, but pretty well set. And you got to work every quarter, renew the current quarter and go one quarter out and just march against them. And anybody who throws you anything that doesn't achieve those goals in that quarter, give them the Heisman, right? Get through that, use the seed money to really prove it out get through an A round to start scaling it up and break some stuff and learn, right? By the B round, you better have a good idea. You're really onto something or you're not getting funded, right? Yeah. And if, if we're talking about entrepreneurs that raise money, right, you're, you're taking the king's coin, right? Like they, there is a clock ticking, like, you yeah. know, people celebrate rounds. It's like every round I see now, it's like, oh my God, what's the burden you've put on yourself for right. time? Verbals, right? 
and and the the level of exit that needs to occur to make it worth that investor's time. Absolutely. And I would talk about that a lot with my entrepreneurs. We went, we raised, um, if you look, we did 23 million in equity capital before this round, right? This round on up around 30-ish plus, right? That's a pretty good preference stack, right? Mm -hmm. For for a company, especially around ad tech or martech. Um, but what we look at is we're creating an entirely new channel. And um, we think we can get this to literally billions in revenue. Um, we have a whole market development strategy that and the product development strategy that supports it. On the one hand, we're just getting started. On the other hand, we are miles ahead with the opportunity to be the dominant global player in a new market we're creating. Um, there are some interesting companies doing variations of our theme. Some are in products we already had pre-planned to go into, leveraging all our data and where we are. Um, maybe they'll be able to compete against it. Maybe they won't. Um, for the most part, there is nobody even close to kind of what we're doing from the startup side. Eventually, we're going to see some of the bigger players want to move into the space as we validate it more. In my experience, you know, you got to get to 100 million run rate plus in developing a new market as a startup. Then the biggies will look and say, how do we get into this? Right. right? They'll either try and build it. They'll try and buy it. They'll try to fund somebody else to do it, whatever. Um, and we're getting there pretty quick. That's actually sooner on the radar than I think most people expect um, for, for Pebble Post, which is really fun. That's amazing. Is there, a, is there a company in New York that should be on people's radar? Um, there's a lot. So first off, I, I think New York's on track to do about $12 billion worth of venture investment this Amazing. year. Amazing. Which is shocking. Like, go back to my Sahara right. Desert comment, right? right? You couldn't even scrape together. When I led Fetchback, great yeah. idea, right? Great exit. Yeah. Fully subscribe a million-dollar seed round, right? <laughs> I mean, people... It's incredible. Now it's $12 billion, right? Uh, Lolly is one that I love. Uh, great entrepreneur, Alex Edelman, um, looked at him, looked at his deal, Cosmic Cart. Um, incredibly thoughtful and, and good-natured human being um, who really always does the right thing. And great idea. He sold it, and he started this new company, uh, Cosmic Cart, he sold a uh, new company, Lolly, where it's basically a rewards program um, issuing Bitcoin. And such a cool and uh, idea, a lot of nuances in his plans of how he's going to do it. Not as simple as, oh, just take rewards and not on Bitcoin. There's a lot to it. Um, getting incredibly fast uh, traction and the market around him has the enthusiasm to will it into being, not just his idea. Right. When it creates a life of its own, that's when, you know, you're on to something fun. Yeah. Um, and it definitely has that spark. That's such a cool idea. Well, Lewis, thanks so much for taking the time and for you know, sharing, you know, your great words of wisdom and kind of the journey through all the different things that you've done. It's been uh, just a great story. Uh, thanks. Pleasure to go over it, man. It's, it's, it's been quite a ride. Right. Just what my guidance counselor said I'd be doing. <laughs> and stay tuned more to come <laughs> take care well that's our show i hope you found it useful and entertaining 
If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFiz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.